Lord, we thank you for uh, the opportunity we have to gather together today and to uh, open your word together, to uh, sing your praises and to seek your face in prayer and uh, to worship you. Lord, we uh, pray now for the Sunday school hour that you would strengthen us, uh, that we might better understand what your word has to say for us. Um, And we pray, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified in all of it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you um, uh, obviously see that I'm here today and not uh, Sean, and that is because uh, Sean has come to a stopping place in his studies. He uh, was thinking maybe he could go one more week, but he's been sick this week, and and so I'm going to go ahead and start. Maybe he'll come back at a later time and and, uh, do some more in regard to apologetics. And uh, I thought uh, as a good... um, uh, connection here with what I want to talk about over these next number of weeks, and that is uh, the issue in regard to the age of the earth. And something I have talked about in the past, but it's been uh, a long time ago. I'm not sure anybody here, except maybe Nalene, um, Eric, you would have been downstairs, so I'm not sure anybody here has, has heard this uh, discussion that I led shortly after I came. Um, I uh, when I first came, I preached through the book of First Peter, and then I moved to the book of Genesis. And as I did so, um, we took a break. At the time, Billy Anderson was teaching on uh, the book of Proverbs, and so we took a bit of a break, and I went through this material at that point. And so I thought it would be um, a good idea to revisit the topic, uh, something certainly that is uh, very important in our understanding of not only the scriptures, but of course, uh, in light of the culture in which we live that teaches something very different. Um, and even, unfortunately, even in many churches, they teach uh, something that is uh, more uh, akin to what the culture teaches than what the scripture teaches. So I thought it would be helpful for us to uh, look at this topic here again and again. Um, you haven't heard it, so it's new, new for you, but uh, at least in terms of my presentation and uh, uh, here as we meet together. So um, the approach that I want to take here is to first give us some questions that we face when we come to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 in terms of our interpretation of it. And then I want to look at how people have responded to those questions And then, of course, we'll look at uh, this topic of evolution, or more specifically, macroevolution, and how um, we should approach it, how we should understand it. What does the scripture say? Does it have anything to say about it, and these kind of things? And so, um, first then, I wanted to put down the, uh, the questions and the issues that uh, we address. The first one, of course... has to do with the fact that science uh, supposedly shows us, without debate anymore, that the earth is millions and even billions of years old. And so, what does the scripture have to say about it? How do we uh, handle this, uh, uh, this position? And of course, what so often goes along with this position uh, among the secular uh, world is that 
science is just a myth, or excuse me, scripture is just a myth. And especially the teaching of creation, it's just some maybe metaphor or some story that has some moral teaching or something to that effect. It's certainly not history, we are told. Now, the other thing, uh, question that we face, is more, if you will, in-house. And that is, how does Genesis 1 relate to Genesis 2? And does this have something to say about the age of the earth? And so, uh, that's the second uh, point. And then thirdly, specifically, how do you have uh, the sun created on day four, and yet there's no light, and so on and so forth? Let me elaborate on these here just a moment. Um, As for the second one, let's turn in our Bibles here to Genesis 1 and 2, and... As I said, in some ways this has more to do with our understanding of the scriptures and maybe less to do with our uh, defense of the faith to unbelievers. Uh, Again, connecting with what Sean was talking about with apologetics. But it does have some connections. And so as you look at Genesis 2, especially beginning in verses 4 and following, it sounds totally different from chapter 1 in terms of how things happened. Uh, For example, in verse 5 of chapter 2, it says, Before any plant of the field was in the earth, before any herb of the field had grown, um, the Lord had not caused it to rain, and there was no man to till the ground, but a mist. So as you read this, it almost sounds like God created man before the plants. As you continue, it says, verse 7, Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And then it says, verse 8, the Lord planted a garden eastward in Eden and put the man in it. And out of the ground he formed the trees and so forth. And so as you read this, it sounds like that uh, this is different from chapter 1. Because obviously in chapter 1, the vegetation was made on day 3. And man was not created until day 6. In addition to that, if you look down at verse 19 here in chapter 2, it says... About, uh, back to verse 18, God is saying, the only not good thing in his creation, that is Adam was alone. He needs a helper. And so in verse 19 it says, out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam. So again, it sounds like Adam was made first, before the animals. And yet in Genesis 1, clearly it says that the birds were created uh, on day 5, and the animals were created on day 6, as was Uh, the man, but it sounds like it happened before that. So how do we fit this together, is the question. Now, back to chapter 1, though. You see, um, in regard to the creation of the sun, moon, and the stars, this, of course, takes place on day 4. And so you see that uh, specifically uh, in... uh, beginning verse uh, 14 and following. So it says about the lights and the firmament to divide the night and the day and the night and the seasons and so forth. And you see this is happening on day four. So notice how this does relate much more specifically, though I do think the second point does as well, to the, the first point. If things were millions and millions or billions of years in length, How can vegetation survive, which 
was created on day three, here according to chapter one, without the sun. How, how does that happen? In addition to that, how do you have light back on the first day? Right? Verse three, let there be light. But there's no sun yet. The sun's not created until day four. So how can there be light without the sun? How can there be vegetation without the sun? And so here's another question that is, that is raised, and this one very specifically in connection with the age of the earth question. So these are, uh, you might say, three key problems that have to be addressed when we come uh, to Genesis 1 and 2. And again, our primary point here is in, reg- in regard to the age of the earth question. So, as we go through the different positions, I want to address how each one of them uh, answered these questions. So, there are, of course, different ways people have answered these questions. There's um, what is called the gap theory. There is, secondly, what is called the framework hypothesis. And then thirdly, you have what is typically called the day-age theory. Fourthly, you have what is usually called the young earth position, okay, or a literal six-day creation. And then, of course, you have the view of evolution and uh, how Christians have, uh, you might say, morphed that together with Scripture. So here are the basic positions that people have taken uh, to answer some of these questions. So, before I proceed and look at the first one in in more detail, are there any questions you have uh, as we begin? Yes, Dale. Certainly, you're uh, responding from a young earth perspective, and that's how they would respond. Revelation 21 speaks of light without the sun, and uh, um, maybe I'll leave it at that at this point. We will come back uh, to that, but these other positions will answer the question differently and uh, say some different things there than than what... uh, Dale just mentioned to us, but uh, uh, I think he's on the right track, but uh, we'll get to that. Um, All right, now, let's talk here briefly about what is called the gap theory. And uh, this was initially taught by a man named Thomas Chalmers. And he lived in the 19th century. 
his position became codified in the Schofield Reference Bible. And so my dad has a Schofield Reference Bible, and it's right there in the notes there in chapter 1. It presents the gap theory as a way to understand some of these things. And so because of this, because Schofield picked up on this theory and put it in his Bible, in the notes, it has become very common among dispensational and baptistic kind of groups. At least it used to be. It is becoming less and less popular today. But it, uh, even today you will hear some people, especially in those circles, speak of the gap theory. And again, it's uh, largely because of the Schofield Reference Bible. Now the theory goes something like this. Now, if you look at Genesis 1 verse 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. They believe that this original statement of creation is when God created the angels and they actually dwelt on the earth initially. And it was during this time frame that Satan fell. And of course that's obviously a, an important question. When did uh, the angels fall? When did God judge Satan? And so on and so forth. And there are different approaches people have taken. This is how they do it. And, um, and so there were animals on the earth at this point. And when God judged Satan, uh, he judged the earth. The animals were killed. This is where we get fossils. And uh, this also led to an upheaval of the created order, leading to the different rock formations and so on and so forth. And so this whole period of time, took millions and in fact billions of years and so there is a gap between verse 1 and verse 2 and so verse 2 then says the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep this is the condition of the earth after the judgment against the, the angels of course the demons and Satan in particular and against the earth uh, itself and so, uh, after God judged it, this is what is left over. Okay, again, that whole time frame, the angels living on the earth and the judgment and so forth, we're dealing with millions and billions of years. So then, you come to verse 3, and God said, let there be light. Now, God is recreating things. And as we know things today, uh, it all began in verse 3, basically. But the fossils and so forth came from the original judgment. Now, this is how they will present it, and they look at a few proof texts to support their position. Let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 4 here a moment. <coughs> Jeremiah 4, and beginning in verse 23, down through verse 26. Now let me read, you follow along in your version, let me read the Old King James, because remember that was the translation they were using at the time, and uh, here's how the Old King James reads, verse 23, I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void, and the heavens, and they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly. 
I beheld, and lo, there was no man. All the birds of the heavens were fled. I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, and all the cities thereof were broken down in the presence of the Lord and by his fierce anger. Now they would say that this is a reference to that original creation, or excuse me, original judgment against the angels. And so this is referring to that time frame. Note the same language of being without form and void, and so it calls us back to Genesis 1, and this language of judgment here points to that, so they say. And so this um, is one of their key proof texts, actually. Yes? Is that because of the following verse? For thus says the Lord, the whole land should be a desolation, yet I will not execute the complete destruction. Mm-hmm. Yes. So they're, they're, they're assuming that the complete destruction would have been just, you know, abolishing it all. Uh, right. And that That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which uh, they will. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's all part of it. And uh, there's uh, another verse that uh, we'll look at here in a minute that points to that idea as well. Okay. How did they? How did they deal with what follows it though in 29 and 30 and 31? Because it indicates people. It indicates that, that, that um, and you, O desolate one, what will you do? Although you dress in scarlet, although you decorate yourself with ornaments of gold, although you enlarge your eyes with paint, in vain you make yourself beautiful, your lovers despise you and seek your life. 29 talks about the horsemen and the bowmen fleeing, and 31 talks about the cry of a woman in labor, in the anguish of one giving birth. Like, how do they fit that in with this before? People context, like the context of the passage. Um, I don't know. I, I think there's a, an abstraction of the section. Okay. So you just kind of remove that particular section out right. and say this actually refers to something previous. Right. Okay. Yeah. Now I think in part it would be something similar to what we do with the passage I forget now in Isaiah where it talks about. Um, the king of Assyria, I believe it is, and that actually has some connection to Satan himself. I, I think they may would, may have a similar kind of idea in that sense. Joe, can no, I see I, your hand? I was going to say pretty much what you did. The Baptist in general tend to pick a verse out of context and then build doctrine on that, where we've got to read things in context. You know, like the idea you, you read the whole chapter context of that, what does it say, as opposed to, right, taking one verse out of here. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just the Baptists to do that, but uh, <laughs> um, yes, that is commonly the case when people end up in a different position, whatever it is, it's largely because they don't read the scripture in its, in its broader context. I and not only within itself, like in Jeremiah 4, but the whole of scripture. Yeah. I just wondered if they had an answer. I'm not aware of it, but I I believe that uh, they they would say that uh, probably in the broader context of Jeremiah four it points to something else, but these verses specifically call us back to the original creation. 
seek out my dad's reference Bible and see what they say here in this section in that way. Um, all right, uh, let me um, hold that thought for now. We'll come back here to Jeremiah 4 in a moment. Let's turn next to Isaiah 45. And um, in Isaiah 45, <laughs> here this is um, in verse 18. And this is another verse that they will point to. And uh, in verse 18 of Isaiah 45, it says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Okay, now, the old King James um, is is very similar to that. Um, I, I don't think necessarily... The difference in translation leads to a different position, but um, they will say that this refers back to, to the original creation, and God judged it, as we just they say, as we see in uh, Jeremiah 4, but he didn't leave it that way, which Naline pointed out there in verse 27 and following, God didn't leave it in that way, and so he was going to uh, recreate at some point, and it was, you know, millions and billions of years later when he did so. And then one other passage, and that is back in Genesis 1, that uh, is very important for their position. In uh, Genesis 1, verse 28, let me again read from the old King James here. Uh, Genesis 1, 28, And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Now, what was the key word that is different here? Replenish. That's right. And now, uh, the word most naturally means to fill. And so the New King James will translate it as fill, not replenish. And so, uh, even if you will, within the system of the King James translations, they recognized that that was not the best way of translating it, and so they they made the change later on. But because of that verse, they, in many ways, understandably, you could see how they could say that God is recreating, he's replenishing, something that, that was there was taken away, now it is put there again. And, of course, the new part of that is now man is on earth, and not the angels. So, these are the three key passages to which they point and um, uh, uh, basically form their position. Now, in response to the three questions that I have over there, the three problems that uh, we face, the first problem, of course, with the issue of the age of the earth, science supposedly says that the earth is millions and billions of years old, Um, scientists certainly say that and uh, so because of this large gap between Genesis 1-1 and verse 2 and especially into verse 3 um, this problem goes away this is how they explain the uh, apparent old age of the earth now for the second and third problems once you turn to 
uh, Genesis 1, verse 3, their position becomes virtually identical to the young earth position. Okay? And so now, um, they would say that the uh, problem of Genesis 1 and 2 has to do with emphasis. Genesis 1 is intended to be chronological. Genesis 2 is not. It is topical in nature, focusing on the creation of man. The verbs that are used in Genesis 2 are perfect in the Hebrew, which means they can have a pluperfect idea. In other words, you can translate them differently. So, for example, um, in uh, verse 8 in Genesis 2, you can translate it, the Lord God had planted a garden. And so, uh, showing that it happened prior to the creation of man. So, they would respond very similarly um, and in fact, identically to the young earth position on, on that question. As for the, the problem three, um, they would say that there was no sun. When God judged, I mean, he judged everything. Maybe there wasn't even a sun, I guess, uh, uh, before this, but uh, how do the animals survive? So um, most likely they would say that even the sun was judged. And so in verse two, right, there's darkness and so then as God created it uh, beginning in verse 3 vegetation is only around for a day without the sun so that's not a problem okay. around uh, here in Pennsylvania we see the sun for a long periods of time sometimes but uh, and certainly for a number of hours during the night there's no sun and so for one day no big deal um, and then uh, they would also say similarly, to what uh, Dale said in regard to the first day and the fourth day. Um, uh, God certainly can have light without having a luminary that we call the sun. And so they would point to Revelation 21 and, and so forth in this way. I'll say more about that uh, more specifically as we look at the young earth position. So, anyway, this, this is how they can uh, answer some of these problems. All right, now, before I look at um, responses to this, uh, do you have any questions or, or comments? Uh, I'm not sure whether <coughs> well, this is the right time or whether this comes later. But I guess the problem I see with it is that uh, you're saying that God goofed. You know, like the angels, that was... Plan A, present creation was Plan B, and Israel was Plan C, and the church is Plan D. You know, no matter what he does, well, somewhere along the way it, it flops, and so it says, well, let's try something else then. Yeah. When God is not very, uh, not God, if that's the way he operates. Yeah. <coughs> well, and you're on to the point that. As I said earlier, this is a very common position, or at least used to be, in dispensational circles. And so it's no surprise that the, the different dispensations also have this dispensation. And God starts over with a new plan or new idea or something like that. And yes, what does that say about God's character? Yeah. Yeah. Now, of course, we see the changes, not as God 
changing his mind, but uh, all part of his plan for various purposes. All right, now, let me respond to this here a little bit. We have some already. Um, There's no place in Scripture that clearly lays forth for us this idea. The idea of original creation, angels on the earth, God judging, and uh, as well as the animals on the earth, and thus having the fossils, and so on and so forth. Um, There's no wasteland idea in Genesis 1 verse 2. It just says it's without form and void. It's not a waste. Um, And, you know, desert-like area or something to that effect. In need of a recreation. In response to the Jeremiah 4 passage, let's turn back there again here a moment. Um, If you look at the broader context, and again, Naileen was beginning to do that for us, the whole context of uh, Jeremiah as a whole, but uh, especially here in this chapter and the surrounding chapters, has to do with God judging Jerusalem. And it is so absolute that he uses creation language to do it. And of course, you look at the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, and even the the fall of Jerusalem and um, uh, when Babylon came in, there wasn't much left. And and so the language here is, is, if you will, ultimate. And he does so by using creation language. We're going to see the same thing this morning in regard to the law. God using creation language um, to show its permanency and so forth. But um, the point is, if you look at the broader context, it's talking about the judgment God will bring on Jerusalem, on its people. And, And so that's how these verses fit in here. It's not talking about some primeval existence and destruction and recreation and so on and so forth. And so, uh, read it in context, basically. Now, in regard to Isaiah 45 and verse 18, um, again, as you read the broader context, there's a different point being made. The reason why God did not create in vain is because uh, we will not seek him in vain. He will save his people, is the point. He's going to create us anew, you might say. So, again, the broader context would lead us in a different direction uh, than this. And then, of course, as we've already said with Genesis 1, verse 28, replenish is not the way to translate the word. Uh, fill is, is what it means. And so, as I said already, the New King James makes that uh, change in translation. Now, there's another point for us uh, to consider here. Now, let's come back to Genesis 3 uh, here, first of all. Where in the scriptures are we ever told the creation of the earth, or excuse me, the judgment of the earth, is because God judged the angels? passage that says that God judges the earth because of the sin of the angels. We certainly talk about the judgment God brings against the angels. Remember Jesus said Satan's falling like lightning and so forth. Um, and, and there's an effect on the earth because of their judgment. Uh, 
But it never says that the earth specifically is judged, including the animals and presumably a son, uh, because of this sin of the uh, angelic world. <coughs> Instead, what we see emphasized is uh, in Genesis 3, verses 17 and following, it says, because of the sin of Adam, cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And so there's, there's a, a clear emphasis right at the beginning that the reason why the earth is uh, filled with death and decay and so forth is because of man's sin, not the angel's. Let's turn to Romans. We see two places where the same idea is given to us. In Romans 5, here first of all. In verses 12 and following, we see um, Paul talking about the first Adam and the second Adam and the connections and differences between them. And in verse 12 it says, Therefore, just as one... As through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. I could certainly keep reading, but that's sufficient. And it's through one man, not an angel, that this happened. Now, you might say, well, that's just death on men, not uh, the animals or something like that. So let's turn to Romans 8. And um, I think Paul makes it clear here. <coughs> In verses 18 and following, especially verses 19 to 22 of Romans 8, for the earnest expectation of the creation, in other words, plants and animals here, right, eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And so all the death and decay and so forth that the creation was subjected to, note Paul connects it with humans. The creation's waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. It's waiting for the liberty of the children of God. He's not talking about angels there. He's talking about human beings. So, anyway, um, here's another way to address their position, and, uh, and I think it falls short uh, because of this point as well. <coughs> uh, Nathan? Well, when you were back in Romans 5, I was thinking about how um, God does such amazing things with just one or two very specific words in the scripture, and, you know, that word, enter. And sin, it doesn't, it doesn't indicate it's just the sin of man. Just, I would assume that's a general word for sin. So sin enters, you know, the implication is it's the first time of event. You know, when you enter something, I mean, this usually implies the first time. Not necessarily, I guess you can enter a room that you've been in before. But sure, but... I, I do think that's in what... This, the, in this year, yes, that passage. And so you see, you know, the problem that this position faces is, there are many, um, but one of the biggest problems has to do with the theological problem. How do you have death before sin? 
You know, any old earth position has to answer that question, whichever one it is. How do you have death before the fall? The Bible very clearly says that death is a result of man's sin, not the angels or anything like that. And so this point will be brought up again as we go through the other positions. Yes? Um, I think the problem with the gap theory is not that the Bible gives no proof for it. I can well imagine that God might do something that we don't need to know about that you wouldn't tell us about. Sure. The problem is, as you and Aileen have been pointing out, it disagrees so many things in scripture and one that strikes me as, as uh, particularly helpful to me in seeing the problem of gap theories is in uh, the second verse of Genesis 1 where it says the earth was without form and void. A world with fossils and a geological record is, it has a form. It's full of something. Right. Something that's revealing something. Okay. It, it just as I said a moment ago, it, it's not described as a wasteland. You know, it's, there's nothing there other than the water and the spirit. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Well, thankfully, very few scholars hold to this position anymore. Uh, as time goes on, fewer and fewer. It is still somewhat popular among the laity in the Baptistic dispensational circles. Even there, it's becoming less and less common. Um, but uh, uh, it is still sometimes heard about. Maybe some of you have heard people talk in this way. Um, some people now call it an exegesis of desperation. And I think that's a fair comment. <laughs> As we've seen here, these passages they point to, <coughs> it doesn't point us in the direction they say at all. So, though this is a, in some ways a rather common position, or at least has been, um, I, I don't find it as a strong position at all. Uh, there's really nothing in it that I find compelling. Uh, you know, some of the other positions you might say, hey, you know, there's some truth to what they're saying. But I don't see any of that here in this uh, viewpoint. So, <clears throat> any final comments or questions here on this? It's a little like when we tell our children something and they get about half of what you say and they, they kind of just don't get the rest. I don't know if they don't <laughs> but I was thinking we do that with God's word, don't we? You know, where we don't read carefully. We don't we don't think carefully about context and about little words like entered and replenish, you know, and it's all about good scholarship. Um, whether it be from the original languages or whether it be from the there's a careful reading in our language. Now, on the, the word replenish, in some ways you can't fault them. That's what their translation said. But, point still is, you should go back to look at what the original is saying. 
sure it's translated correctly. Any other comments or questions? <coughs> now, as I um, have said at other times, let me end by saying it here. Um, you know, it, it may, on the surface, seem like some of these discussions are not all that important. Now, why are we talking about these theories and, and so on and so forth? Um, in part is because of what Sean just did. The better we understand where some people are coming from, the better we can respond to them and in our apologetics, not just with unbelievers, but even with other believers to help us better understand what Scripture teaches. And secondly, the issue of creation is foundational for everything we believe. If we believe wrongly, somebody's spinning up the walk here, the traveling here. But if we believe wrongly about creation, we're going to believe wrongly about everything else.